Welcome to Season 5 of the Excel Still More Podcast. I'm still your host, Chris Emerson, and I'm here to encourage you in your walk with the Lord, and I'm glad you've joined. The program continues to be sponsored by Cunningham Financial Group. John is a good friend, and he's helped me and my family in everything from stock and mutual fund investing to annuities, life insurance, and retirement planning. I certainly commend him to you. If you have needs in any of those areas, you can reach him at 615-895-7773. Thank you again for your ongoing encouragement and support. Let's get started. So today we're going to turn our attention back to the book Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser. I did an episode a few weeks ago called The Holy Longing that dealt with the first part of that book specifically as it pertains to young adulthood from puberty up into your early 20s, the different unique challenges that we face at that age, and several key spiritual things that need to be growing along with everything else. I'll take just a moment and remind you about the three distinct stages of life laid out in that book. The first one is called Essential Discipleship. This is the struggle to get our lives together. And as I just noted, we used an episode trying to help young people pull their lives together that is optimistic and joyful in the present, but is also preparing you for the largest portion of your life, the second stage, which is called mature discipleship. For most of us, this will represent the largest portion of our life, and these are the years of our lives where we are supposed to be moving from the struggle to get our lives together to addressing the struggle to give our lives away. All of that compassion and justice we were seeding into our young people in the previous episode is supposed to grow into a charitable, selfless, giving life. We accumulate goods. We accumulate free time. We accumulate wisdom. We use our youthful energy and optimism to push through barriers and bring all of that together. But to what end? To hoard it for ourselves? No, that has never been God's plan. Mature discipleship is learning what it means to give those goods away, that time away, to share that wisdom you have accumulated for the benefit of others. The truth is, this is a lot harder for some of us than others. Maybe you're like me. You used your younger years building and accumulating and forming But something was missing in your heart during those same years. And so now, if you're like me, you're reading the Gospel of Luke or the book of James or basically the Bible in general, and you're learning that God has blessed you immensely so that you can be able to share. And yet, maybe that sense of sharing just doesn't come as natural to you as it does to others. As I say that to you, it reminds me of a sermon that I preached quite a bit last year, and I'm sure it's in an episode somewhere where I talked about the story of the Good Samaritan. There are three categories of people in that story. First of all, there are takers. These are the robbers who assaulted the man. Second of all, there are givers. That's the Good Samaritan. He gave his time and attention and money to help someone he did not know. I believe this world has takers in it and also incredible givers, but I also believe they represent small percentages on opposite ends of the scale. I'm convinced a great many people are in that third category. You know, the priest who walked by on the other side of the road and the Levite who did the same. They were neither givers nor takers. They were keepers. 
They are the people who would say, I will pray for you and I certainly wish you the best, but I'm going to keep my time and I hope that yours goes well. I'm going to retain my energy for myself and my family and I pray that God supplies great energy to you. I'll keep my money. I mean, after all, I worked hard and built this life and I'll pray that God puts money in your hand, everything that you need to get back on your feet. I think I've confessed this before, but without the power of the Holy Spirit in me, that is exactly the category I would be in. According to Rollheiser's progression, I would be someone who looked back at the early stages during essential discipleship, where I was seeking to connect to God and putting my life together, and I would take some pride in the way that has come together. But because I didn't properly seed compassion and justice for others along with it, I tend to settle into what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. But having gone through this process of reading through the New Testament every 260 days, a chapter a day, Lord willing, until Jesus comes back, it has become crystal clear, even without Rollheiser or anyone else's book, that mature discipleship requires changes in me so that I can give this life away. Instead of just walking you through the parable of the Good Samaritan and saying, go be more like that, I think today I can share with you three little stories in the Gospels to help you and help me on this pathway to pursuing mature discipleship. Now, on its surface, that very phrase challenges you to be humble. It is easy to settle into this idea that if you have obeyed the truth and you worship at the right place and you're a good person, that you are, in fact, mature. And look, I'm not here to challenge that with you. Maybe I should change the title to Pursuing Maturer Discipleship. Or maybe you can let me off the hook by simply saying, let's excel still more. Really quickly, to wrap up the full cycle of the Rollheiser book, remember, it starts with essential discipleship, the struggle to get our lives together, then mature discipleship, the struggle to give our lives away, and ultimately, I hope to present an episode on radical discipleship, the struggle to give our deaths away. That connects to the principle of what Jesus did and apostles and prophets did. They offered everything and they made the offering of themselves their greatest gift to God and others. But I guess I look at it this way. Until I can learn to more deeply share my time and energy, my wisdom and goods with others, I've got quite a bit of learning to do before I'm ready to just give my death away. For the sake of the king, and his people. So let me share with you three stories from the Bible today that have been very helpful to me. And if you're interested in hearing them read or hearing other passages that complement these ideas, this is in fact one of those lessons that is also a sermon. I really do want to thank you, by the way. It's Friday, and the degree of difficulty on this pursuing mature discipleship sermon has been a little more than usual. So I'm using you as an opportunity to test out some of this application in a 20-minute cut-to-the-chase kind of way. And then, Lord willing, I'll get to present the sermon on Sunday, and this episode will release the next day. So I share all of that to say that if you want a deeper biblical dive into this text, then you can go to the Lindell Church of Christ YouTube page, and you can watch the sermon there. Okay, three stories, and I'll tell you all three right here up front. I want to talk about the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, on the day that Christ was raised, they were walking away from the city of Jerusalem. We'll talk about that. The second story is from John chapter 6, where the people have gathered to be fed, and Jesus starts feeding them truths that are way more than they can digest. And you might recall that most of them leave 
Jesus asks Peter if he too will leave, and we'll talk about his answer. And then we'll finish with the story of the Gentile woman who begged Jesus to heal her daughter. Jesus refused initially, but then her faith effectively led to him expanding his ministry beyond the Jewish people to help her as well. Each one of those has something within it that I need you to see. So let's start with the first. The two men on that road leaving Jerusalem were discouraged. They thought that Jesus was coming to establish his rule here upon this earth, and yet instead he was crucified and placed in a grave. Their hopes had been dashed. To them, crucifixion was failure. Jesus appears to them. They do not know it's him. He asks them about that. He chastises them pretty directly and then reveals from Scripture that the death of the Messiah is the exact plan, and that, pertaining to the point today, the Messiah's greatest achievement was found in taking that lowest place. They end up sitting down to dinner, and he reveals who he is and then disappears. They recognize that the death of Jesus was a victory, and his resurrection has proven it, and so they return to Jerusalem to speak to the disciples. Listen, there's no doubt that Jesus being raised from the dead, appearing to people, and then ascending into heaven is an incredible series of events with eternal implications. But it seems to me that Jesus appearing to them was not to say we finally got to victory, but to validate that the crucifixion was a great victory. It was Jesus' willingness to achieve full self-sacrifice that has the deepest and most lasting impact on the lives of believers. Jesus did not assume some rule on earth after his resurrection. He ascended into heaven to the glories that come in the spiritual realm after this life is over. Those two men and the other disciples learned that the greatest achievement you can make in this life is to fully sacrifice yourself here for the good of others. His resurrection didn't prove that if you make a few big sacrifices here, you'll get it all back and you'll have great glory here on this earth. Instead, it proved that if you learn to give yourself entirely to the good of others in this world, there is a great glorification coming in eternity. The apostles got this perfectly because after they watched Jesus ascend, what did they do in mature discipleship with the rest of their lives? They gave up those lives. They effectively pursued the pathway of Jesus to martyrdom for the sake of what was eternal. They embraced the idea of the upside-down kingdom, where true greatness within that kingdom is defined by the depths of your service to others. You know, like Jesus did on the cross. It's interesting to note that on Sunday, Jesus did not set up for us to celebrate his resurrection and ascension, though they are mighty and they prove a great many things. He wants us to remember the sacrifice. He wants us to connect to greatness so that we can learn what it means to be great. So here is a first thought, something those two men learned and we need to learn as well. First of all, there is great glory in the cross. But secondly, pursuing kingdom greatness in your life is found in emulating the pathway of Jesus and ought to be defined and assigned greatest value by that which you sacrifice for the cause. I just don't know if I've always thought like that. I knew that's what Jesus did, but was I supposed to do that too? As the disciples learned, that's exactly what they did. Point one, growing in discipleship is accomplished through fuller, holy self-sacrifice. Glory comes after. 
Okay, file that idea away. We will return to it at the end, and let me take you to story number two. You remember in John 6 that disciples were following Jesus because they believed in him, but also because he was filling their bellies. Jesus finally looks at them and says, here's what I want you to eat. I want you to eat my body, and I want you to drink my blood. This was a powerful statement about the depths of discipleship. It carries ideas of taking Jesus in, being filled with him, nourished by him, and completely dependent on who he is and what he provides. But most of the followers did not understand what he was saying at all. All they knew was it didn't mean actual bread. And so it says most of them turned around and left him. It's interesting to me that he looks at Peter and says, you're not going to leave also, are you? And I'm guessing here a bit, but I think he did that because Peter likewise had no idea what Jesus was talking about. That's not a far-fetched statement, by the way. Very often, Peter did not understand what was happening, what Jesus was doing or saying. Peter did not often or even frequently have clarity on Jesus' meaning or demands. But he did understand this, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter learned a lot more later and became more refined in his speech, but early on, all he knew was Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that salvation is found in him. He was often so confused that he thought what should happen was the opposite of what Jesus said was going to happen. But his faith was deeper than his understanding and his emotions. His faith was a decision to side with Jesus no matter what. That is the second requirement for mature discipleship, a deep, intense trust, even if you do not understand, even if you cannot explain something, even if it doesn't make sense to you. It feels like Christianity today is about doing the things that Jesus says that make sense to us. When he says things that are super challenging or difficult, like sections in the Sermon on the Mount, we just label them as figurative or generic. Or when there are issues with Jesus' teaching on hell or the behavior of the Israelites in the Old Testament, and it just doesn't align to our sense of what is holy or moral, well, some have just stopped following God altogether. I'll tell you this, when it comes to mature discipleship and giving your life away and what its true purpose is, the scriptures say very difficult, all-in, full-surrender things that you're probably not ready for. You and I probably don't even fully understand it. But have you reached a point in your faith where you say, to whom shall I go? Where else could I go? Only Jesus provides eternal life. I do not always understand. Sometimes I'm not even sure I agree. But by faith, Lord, I am with you. Use me. Second point, growing in discipleship demands deeper, intense trust where the clarity may come later. The third and final story is the Canaanite woman begging Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. Initially, she addressed him as the son of David, and he did not answer her a word. He finally says to his disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. The text says he answered and said, It is not good to take a children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. 
This is a tough little story. I mean, why didn't Jesus just heal the girl? Doesn't he care about her? Well, her initially addressing him as son of David, I think, is important. It references that she understands that he is associated with the Jewish people. And Jesus' initial mission had to do with the salvation of the Jewish people. But then it's interesting that she changes her wording to calling him Lord, appealing to his broader sense of authority and power. It was not Jesus' intention at this time to extend his miracles to Gentiles, much like the development of the church in the first century started with Jews only until the time was right. But Jesus had concerns for people that went beyond just him being the son of David and to him being sent for all. So he saw her faith, he moved beyond the borders under which he was operating, and he extended mercy to even her. He saw her, he heard her, and he responded to her. The point I'd have you see in Jesus is that his extended mercy was not limited by just his primary mission. And honestly, I think more of us need to hear that in terms of our own mission. We can become very narrow in who we are here to help. We consider ourselves Christians here to help Christians, which is a primary concern, and the Scripture teaches us about that, from churches organizing funds to help needy Christians to Galatians 6, which talks about doing good primarily to the household of the faith. Sometimes we restrict our patience and charity to our family, people who have been charged to us as our children or grandchildren. Maybe we refuse to see that there are others beyond that scope that God puts in our lives who are pleading for some form of help or guidance. I'm not in any way insinuating Jesus did anything wrong. He had a primary focus that was godly, but he had a heart that could expand when needed. I think the question I'm asking myself is, do I have a heart that can expand when needed? I think of my responsibility as a brother, and I connect that to Christians, but do I understand my responsibility as neighbor, which connects me to anyone and everyone that God puts in front of me who is seeking something from him? Ultimately, I'm talking about a lack of evangelism among God's people, the country club mentality instead of hospital, and I could just preach a sermon saying, hey, let's go be more evangelistic. Let's get out there and help people in the community. Let's look for those who simply know that they're lost and let's show them the way. But you cannot do what you are not maturing to be able to do. So this story is asking you to grow into a closer look at Jesus, who altered his words and will that day to seek and save the lost, even the dogs looking for crumbs off the corner of the table. Point number three, you and I need to grow in discipleship through a better understanding of our wider, always active mission. The work is the people. The work is all people. So to wrap this up, these three principles have hit heavy on my heart, and I'm excited about how they can actually change my daily behavior. It started with this idea, I want to grow and become a more mature disciple. I need to see some benefit from the struggle to give my life away. How can I do that? Growing in the understanding of three ideas. Jesus' greatest achievement was found in his lowest place. And my life is about embracing that I need to be on that same journey to fuller self-sacrifice. Glory comes later. Paul did not understand all of the words of Jesus, maybe not even many of the words, but Jesus' fullness and will is always going to be more than I can fully comprehend. By faith, I will not let that be an interruption or a stumbling block. 
I need to grow to deeper, more intense trust, understanding that if it be God's will, clarity will come later. And then lastly, may you and I take that sense of fuller sacrifice, of trust even if we don't have understanding, and use it to expand our scope beyond just our family and fellow believers, but to even someone like this Gentile woman, to even a neighbor or a stranger from a place of Christ-like compassion. I'm already starting to make decisions and commitments in my life that I've always wanted to make, but I didn't know how. But I have found what to pray about and the motivation to change in these three simple stories. I pray that they are a blessing to you as you are pursuing mature discipleship. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed this program, will you share it with someone you care about? One thing I've learned over these five seasons is that there's nothing as powerful in advertising as word of mouth sharing between friends. Speaking of friends, let me once again commend you to give John Cunningham a call. He and his team have a wide variety of tools to help you use your present budget and life to build towards a more secure and hopeful financial future. Once again, you can reach him at 615-895-7773. And always remember, whatever you choose to do today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, excel still more.